Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is April 10th, 2019, and my guest is economist, theologian, and author Mary Hirschfeld of Villanova University. Mary and I both have PhDs in economics and both have become a little disenchanted with the underlying framework of modern economics. And I like to frame my disenchantment through the ideas of Adam Smith and Mary recently uh, through the ideas of Thomas Aquinas, the 13th century philosopher, theologian, and scholastic. Today's conversation is going to be based on Mary's new book, Aquinas and the Market Toward a Humane Economy. Mary, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. It's a real pleasure to be here. In the standard economics paradigm, uh, human beings try to maximize their well-being, often called utility, the capital U, subject to the constraints of limited income. What's wrong with that approach? Well, it depends on what you want to do with it. Uh, If you mean for it to be a description of how people behave, it's still probably not perfect, but it probably picks up some features of how a lot of people act. Um, But if you ask the question, should we uh, pursue our happiness by trying to maximize our utility subject to constraint, uh, there I think uh, the answer has to be no. It's uh, actually an actively bad idea. Uh, So why do I think that? Um, Part of the key project of pursuing happiness or developing as a wise human being is figuring out which goods are worthy of pursuit. And it shouldn't take too much reflection to realize that the goods that make up a meaningful human life are the sorts of human goods that aren't necessarily subject to constraint by income or time. So uh, the pursuit of justice or developing close relationships with your family, things like that. Um, For Aquinas, a lot of this gets picked up in the term virtue, trying to become an excellent version of a human being, but that has a a wide range of of these higher goods associated with it. And and the key point about these higher goods is uh, they're not constrained by income. Um, So, yeah, so when we think in terms of pursuing happiness as maximizing to constraint, what we inevitably end up doing is substituting into the or thinking of the utility function as being primarily premised on these lower goods that that do seem to be scarce or subject to constraint. So the material goods, and that seems to shape our whole idea about what happiness is about. And I think that's very misleading. Of course, you could make the opposite argument uh, that human beings are as they are. Uh, they care about stuff. Maybe they should, maybe they shouldn't, but they do care about it. And I guess if one way to frame this challenge to your challenge is to ask, do people wish they had more stuff? Um, a lot of people act as if they do. They seem to pursue stuff. Uh, in many ways, I would argue the utility maximization framework produces almost nothing of scientific or predictive value other than their people have to make trade-offs, uh, right? So at a given level of income, uh, the essential insight of it's not so essential, it's so bland and uninteresting, but the essential that any, it's an insight that any 
human being, I think, is aware of. You can't have everything you want, uh, as the Rolling Stones uh, said so well. And so you have to make trade-offs. And that's all that's really there. That's uh, You could argue that. Do you agree? Um, do I agree? I, yes and no. Um, again, I, I think in terms of key features of human behavior that economics picks up, that would be one of them. Um, and it's true, a lot of people do think you can't always get what you want because you always want a little bit more, and so you have to make these trade-offs. But what Aquinas helps you to see is that there's another way of thinking about human happiness that is ultimately more fulfilling and more sustainable. And that's one where you think, where you just pause. You put, you put the whole project on pause and you think, what do I want my life to look like? What are the goods that I want to have in it? And if you do that, you're going to see that um, the amount of material goods, the amount of stuff you need is actually uh, finite. Um, so for me to live out a good life, uh, pursuing the higher goods I try to pursue as a professor of trying to engage with my students, share knowledge, to share my ideas with the public through my writing, um, to participate in my various communities and all of that, requires a certain standard of living in order to carry that out well. Um, and I actually happen to have that amount of money. So for me, there really isn't scarcity. Um, I don't need any more stuff. And... And I think Aquinas and Aristotle, on whom he draws a lot, would say that if you don't if you don't order your material desires to these higher goods in such a way that you know how much you need, roughly speaking, um, you will end up treating those lower material goods as the thing that your life is really about. And um, and and they have good arguments about why that's not a good not likely to be ultimately fulfilling in the in the deepest sense possible for, for humans. Well, Adam Smith would agree. Maybe we'll get into that later. But mm-hmm. I, I want to rephrase the critique that I started us with, and and some of the, you know, my suggestion was that this vision of human activity as maximizing something is sterile in, in the sense that it it only teaches us that there are trade offs. It leaves out a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that a more serious critique would be that and and Robert Frank and others have made the suggestion that if you teach people that this is the definition of rationality, they start to think that that more stuff will lead you to happiness, uh greater happiness, which I think is with you, I agree, is is a um a bad uh way to look at the world. But I think the deeper point that you're you're suggesting is that the stuff that isn't in our utility function as economists, belonging, friendship, love, justice, uh, those things often conflict. (laughs) They're not just left out. They conflict with the economists. uh, It's something of a straw man. I I wish it were something of a straw man. I don't think it is. But let's call the textbook version of homo economicus, the economic human being, is, is... maximizing utility dependent on stuff, a lot of times, you know, taking that new job with the higher salary uh, that allows you to have the bigger house, the nicer car, and more stuff means less time for your family, your community, your pursuit of uh, French playing the flute, whatever it is that is not commercially oriented. And I think economists, not intending it, but they become blind to those to those trade-offs. 
Very much so. I mean, in principle, they're going to tell you that they can put all those things into a utility function. Um, the A, there's real questions about whether they're the sorts of goods that could be modeled as though, oh, I want justice on the one hand and more pizza on the other. Um, but but B, in practice, they don't. And you're right. And the, the critique by Frank, I think, is a concerning one. And this gets taught to lots and lots of students who then think that it's rational to pursue life in terms of maximizing your utility function subject to constraint, which in turn means that you really want more income to loosen up those constraints. And... And people do end up making these decisions that subordinate the real goods that, if you ask them, they'd say that they're real goods that they care about, but they end up subordinating them to the economic concerns. The whole idea that economic concerns are independent, should have independent weight, independent of these higher goods, is itself a symptom of this disorder. Um, the last thing I want to say is, it just broke my heart. I was teaching some of this material in one of my classes, and I had a student who just said, you know, my heart's desire would be to first to be a first grade teacher. That's really what I would like to do. But I can't do that because it wouldn't be rational. And, and what she meant was because I, I wouldn't make enough money. And um, yeah, so, so I, it, it really is ubiquitous in the culture. And I do think the economic way of thinking just uh, supports that. And that's part of what I try to talk about in the book. And, and you're honest about it. I mean, I don't think you, neither you nor I are suggesting that, that people are happy being poor. We're not. We're not talking oh, no. about poverty. We're not talking about a, a life as an, an aesthete of just living as as a uh, in poverty. Uh, but I think that that example is really, as you say, it's poignant. It's uh, I've counseled a number of young people to take jobs that they're uneasy about, be, and maybe I shouldn't. I don't know, but I counsel them to do the thing they love. Uh, often because they don't um, need you don't need infinite amount of stuff and and it's great to spend eight hours a day doing something you love and that's precious beyond in so many ways obviously and in particular teaching I've told people to go into uh, high school and and lower levels of teaching because it makes their hearts sing and that counts so I think it's a fascinating question. Um, I'll just add, on the last day of class, I always tell my students, don't take the job that pays the most money. Mm-hmm. Unless unless you're lucky and it happens to be the job that you love also. But there is a trade-off there. And the fact that people have trouble seeing that trade-off, to me, is, is a serious uh, piece of, of valuable information. So I want to suggest that behavioral economics, uh, its critique of economics, I think, is, is actually has its own level of sterility, which is, oh, people aren't that rational. They don't make calculations. They have biases. Yeah, but that, that's just such a small <laughs> part of the problem. Yeah. And, and I think the, the inability uh, – let me make a speculation, and, and, and you can respond to it. I think when you talk about stuff all the time, the demand for shirts and beer and whatever it is that you put on your blackboard as a college professor um, – you end up – you can't help but end up thinking less about these other things. And yes, you'd wave your hand and say, yeah, we could put them in the oh, – of course they matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think when you do that all day long, year after year, you start to forget about them. It's like the drunk looking for the keys under the lamppost. And so I think the stuff that can't be measured, dignity, respect, agency, all that's all those important human experiences just get forgotten. Yeah. 
And, and, and what I'm calling for really is just to completely reverse it. So when we think about economic life, we should think first in terms of dignity, agency, those kinds of human goods. And then second, how does the economic life support enhance those things? Um, but yeah, it, it distorts our thinking just massively. Well, like once I started seeing the world this way, you just start to see it uh, really everywhere. Um, things like we say with a straight face that, you know, we can't afford to have um, every household needs to be a two-income household nowadays in order to make ends meet. We say that with a straight face. We're the richest people who have ever lived. We should have more leisure, not less of it. Um, and, and we're unable to see these things happening as irrational, which in some sense they clearly are. All right. Of course, if two people both want to work, it's no problem. But if one of them oh, doesn't sure. want to work uh, for whatever reason, either to, have, to do childcare or to volunteer or work on a hobby um, – and take a lower standard of material well-being, I, that's all to the good. And yet uh, we talk about it as if it's, quote, impossible. Yeah. Now, I mean, the irony is way back in the 1930s, John Maynard Keynes thought we were about to arrive at a place where we'd have solved the economic problem. Um, and, he, and his concern was, what are we going to do with all of this abundant leisure? So whatever this thing is, it does feel like – <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> So, and Juliet Shores picked it up in the overworked American and the un, over, overworked American and, and overspent American, um, two different books talking about this phenomenon. Because it, it does suggest that it, the culture is getting worse on this dimension, like over the decades, and it comes to seem more and more normal to us. And, and the real tragedy is we are so very rich, and yet we don't. Because the flip side of this is if I keep pursuing more, and I always feel that I have scarcity in my life. Somehow I'm not seeing how much I do have. I'm not actually fully present to or enjoying the material goods that are right here in my living room. And so that's also, to me, part of the tragedy. Um, we're missing the higher goods. And I think we're also not fully enjoying the lower goods that we actually have. Uh, because there's something in this maximizing mentality that means you're always looking for the next step. And so you're missing happiness on multiple levels when you, when you try to pursue your life this way. So if, if someone was listening in on this conversation, didn't know anything about you or me, they'd say, oh, well, these are obviously two leftists who hate capitalism, uh, who think that uh, we need a commercial sector based on people, not profit. And obviously uh, greed is a sin, and we need to put the commercial world in perspective – and most of that kind of talk comes from the either the left or the the far left, and yet I am not on the left or far left, and I don't think you are either. How do we understand that, and how do we reassure our listeners? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I do try to spend uh, time in my book, and I might end up writing a follow up about it. I I love markets. Um, I think private property is an institution that's absolutely fitting to human nature. Um, and I think if you take this lens of thinking about life in terms of these higher goods and then economic life in service of it, you come up with a really compelling case for like what is it for the good of business. Like it's really good for the baker to set up their shop. They're exercising their human talents. They're um, providing bread and, and other 
items to the community. They're building relationships. All these things are really, really good. And they're making a living. And markets coordinate all this so that we end up being interdependent. It it opens up a beautiful view of how markets work in a way that's compelling in its own right. Um, the only the only switch is to say that that the goods that we're pursuing are you know are finite, not this infinite desire for more. And 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 I go on to talk about and this just comes from Aristotle. But once we decide we want an infinite amount of more, uh, you're going to end up corrupting those real goods that that markets actually can and should produce. So. Adam Smith says the same thing, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Adam Smith says man naturally desires not only to be loved but to be lovely. And by uh, loved, Smith means not just romantic love but paid attention to, respected, admired, praised, etc. Matter, I, you know, I say it's, it's all about mattering. It's an ugly word. I don't. I need a better way to say it. But people, people want to matter. They they want to have some reason to be. They want people to understand and see them as as a value either it doesn't have to be physically in making stuff it could just be socially and supportively as a friend and uh so that's what makes us happy says smith uh and yet uh smith says there's two ways to get there one of them is to be rich wealthy and famous and let's just stick with wealthy so wealthy people tend to get a lot of attention paid to them not just by advertising, but by the people around them. People look up to wealthy people. People want their opinion. People want to dress the way they dress and so on. And Smith says, that's a fool's game. Pursuing that is not going to really make you happy. You're better off uh, echoing Aquinas. Uh, Smith says, you're better off being virtuous. You're better off being wise. You're better off accumulating wisdom and being respected and honored and praised for that rather than money or fame or power. And... Um, I think that's really good advice. I think there's a separate question of whether how people actually behave, right? That, that's where you and I are both, I think, blurring the what economists call the positive and normative distinction, the, the distinction between positive, which is how the world is, and normative versus how it ought to be or how we'd like it to head. And I, I think it's an open question whether people really do pursue more and more and more. So I think, you know, that's that's – the econ one of defense of the economist worldview is well, you know, sure, stuff doesn't make you happy, but people act like that, that that it does. So that's what we should how we should treat them. Yeah, although I I will say there actually are significant numbers of people who pursue lives where they do pursue the calling that matters to them, regardless of status or wealth. So they're more like Smith people pursuing you know the goods of virtue and character and community, and um, they exist and. And the economic framework just can't always handle that very well. And so I, maybe in the aggregate, there's enough that are pursuing more wealth or whatever that their models work out well. Um, but I think, I think I remember a piece by Tyler Cowan uh, where he, he, he suggested that there's a lot of people who are income satisficers. You know, you, you've got, there are people teaching first grade, for example. There are people who, yep. you know, who go to work as a nurse or, and, and, and they're not making a lot of money, but they chose that occupation because it was meaningful. So, um, but, the, but the positive normative distinction also, it, it is blurry. So um, just to repeat something that we've already been talking about, when economists model people as pursuing more wealth um, and calling that rational, they are also, I think, shaping or at least endorsing these cultural trends that support that path to happiness that that probably is not the best one. So, so if you said that, all, go ahead. 
Well, if you said that to me 25 years ago, uh, I would have said that's ridiculous. That's that's absurd. Are you you're telling me that economists through their little econ 101 classes are shaping our our commercial culture? How would you? I mean, doesn't that doesn't that strike you as a bit absurd? Well, people always do push back on on me about this, and and I don't mean that economists have single handedly created this catastrophe. Um, but I do think they amplify it. So I think part of the reason why economics looks like a sensible approach is because it's picking up on things that are already there. So they're reflecting back what's going on in the culture. But then they slap on labels like this is rational. They teach their students how to think this way. Uh, and that just reinforces it. Um, so if you tune into a podcast like Planet Money or if you read a book like Freakonomics, they're just, again, amplifying this sort of message. And, and I do think that, well, certainly makes it harder to, to try to persuade people uh, that there's another approach to happiness that's better. Um, but I, I do think it's shifting the uh, culture. I think it's Michael Sandel who says the word incentivize has metastasized in the last <laughs> two or three decades, um, just as a measure of the spread of this economic way of thinking. And his book, What Money Can't Buy, I think is a lamentation of as we shift towards this way, this economic way of thinking, we're forgetting a lot of these other modes of thought that used to come more naturally to us. Um, well, I, so. let, me, let me, again, even though I kind of mostly agree with you. Maybe more than mostly entirely agree with you. I, I don't think I, I don't find the Sandel critique as 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 uh, persuasive as perhaps you do. I don't think it, there's anything wrong with incentivizing people. I don't think there's anything wrong. Maybe I just haven't come far enough along with the critique, but I don't think there's anything wrong with realizing that people respond to incentives and to structure public policy in certain ways to take advantage of that or to understand. To do that with that understanding of that of that reality that people respond to incentives, uh, I think I've always thought that the you know the deepest there are really only three principles in economics. People respond to incentives. Uh, they're trade offs. That's number two. That's opportunity cost. Same idea. And number three is when people interact with each other in what we call markets, but in any more generally in emergent orders uh, and in complexity. Uh, it's complicated. <laughs> it's not the things that are going to happen are not as straightforward as you think, and you, that gives you the unintended consequences, and it it gives you an appreciation that many things work better. Not everything, many things work better when they're undesigned and unregulated and not created from the top down. And I think the critics of economics on the left miss that last point. But to take the Sandel point about incentivizing, I think the deeper point isn't that. That incentives have problems. I think it's when you use incentives only for the things that matter, that are measurable, excuse me, and you ignore the things that, that don't matter. That's a legitimate critique. But to argue that in things that you can measure that, that incentives matter, that seems pretty like a good idea to, to know about that. Yeah, no, and I, I certainly don't mean to suggest by any stretch that policymakers should ignore incentives and the fact that they shape human behavior. Um, what I'm more worried about, so I, I think there's an important role for economics to play precisely because they do understand this. Um, the, the point I want to make, though, is it's not the whole picture, and you need to remember that it's not the whole picture. And I think Samuel Bowles, and I'm not going to remember the name of his book, but it's his most latest one, um, 
talks about this. Like, so incentives shape behavior, but insofar as incentives also suggest that more is better, they also might undermine some of these other norms or other higher goods. And so a policymaker needs to be careful about balancing them. And and I actually read Sandel as saying the same thing. It's not that we should ignore incentives or not use them. It's that when we come to think about public policy exclusively in terms of incentives, we risk forming people in a way that thinks more is better and undermining the commitment to higher goods that can often generate good behavior on its own. Um, so the, So from my point of view, a really good economist has to do this careful balancing act between how do we structure policies so that, yes, we use incentives, but we don't thereby also undermine <clears throat> the deeper goods that that we're trying to aim at. So I'm going to push back a little a little okay. further against Sandel, okay. see if I can uh, get you to agree. Uh so more isn't better, but I would argue more kidneys are better than fewer kidneys for people who have uh, kidney failure. And we don't have very many kidneys donated in the United States through just the um, incentive of altruism. Uh, and so there's an argument to be made that we should let people donate their kidneys for money. Now, I think you'd get more kidneys – I could be wrong about that, obviously, but I think you would get more kidneys. You'd get kidneys from different people once you said it was up for monetary donate, donation rather than just a pure altruism. And I think you could argue that that would be a better world than the world we live in where people are dying or stuck on kidney dialysis machines that are incredibly life-diminishing uh, and incredibly expensive, paid for by usually other people. Uh, so – I think that's where the rubber hits the road in this kind of argument. Now, you, would you argue that it's immoral to monetize the donation of a body part? I'm worried about it, so I'm not prepared to endorse or condemn, um, but I am worried about it. So for me, that's an open question. Um, but let's say for the sake of argument that, that I don't have a problem with monetizing it, there's still a real question about whether – Paying people, I mean, giving up a kidney seems like a major sacrifice, like a hard thing to do. And maybe you get more of it if you pay people, but maybe you get even more of it if you somehow socially acknowledge it as a heroic, noble, lovable sacrifice. Um, and that to the degree that you monetize it, then it becomes, oh, she just did it for money. Uh, and you may actually have a perverse effect where you get fewer kidneys and not more. And and. Sandel points to a few studies on smaller issues like the Israeli daycare center, where when you bring in incentives, you actually get the perverse, incentive, uh, perverse effect that you get less of what you were trying to get because you also inadvertently undermine the norms. Um, I don't know if you need me to spell out that particular example, um, but there was a daycare center. Parents were coming late. They were getting irritated, so they just decided to start charging their parents for coming late, and it turned out that parents came even later. And, 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 and what seems to have happened is once you convert coming late, this is something you can buy, people just buy more of it. And, um, and you have thereby undermined the norm that says out of respect for the daycare workers, I should come pick up my kid on time. So um, I'm glad you mentioned that example because it is the single most frequently mentioned <laughs> example that I despise okay. and, and really dislike. So I'm going to, uh, let me give you my reaction to that. 
that is it, when I say it's it's the most common. It gets quoted. So Sandel quotes it. I think you quote it in your book, right? Did did you mention it in the book? I think you did. Yeah, no, I did, and Bowles does. Bowles does, well, and yeah. Dan Pink does. We talked about it on on his. I think it was Dan. We talked about it on his on one of the times uh, I've interviewed him. And I I just want to say a couple things about it, and then I'm going to, uh, I'll give you a little bit of agreement for what it's worth. <laughs> so um, I, I think if they had picked a large enough fine. They wouldn't have seen a, an increase in people being late. They would have picked or seen a, a reduction. So I don't think you want to say as a one should say and as, as a general principle that substituting money for norms uh, is counterproductive. I think it depends on whether you pick it correctly. I think the fundamental claim of the paper, which is just a hypothesis, that when you convert something to money, uh, you reduce the impact of the norm, could be true. You know, but you just need to pick a, big, a bigger one. The more fundamental point which is made by Ariel Rubenstein, the Israeli uh, game theorist. And I think we talked about it in his con- my econ talk conversation because I just found his critique so in- uh, entertaining, is that the people who did that study says two things about it. One, the actual researchers weren't on the, on the ground. They had graduate students or research assistants collect the data, which is a little bit weird because you don't know exactly whether it was correct c- collected correctly. That's number one. Number two, he said... If you think you can make an Israeli pay a fine at 5.07 when they show – we're supposed to show up at 5 and they're charged so many uh, pounds, Israeli currency, for for being late, uh, one-ninth uh, of an hour, he said, you're crazy. No, no Israeli would pay that fine. It just ain't happening to the daycare center. So he expressed some cultural skepticism of this fact. Now, having said that, that's just my pet peeve about that study. Having said that, I, I could imagine – I like your first point, and I agree with it 100%. Rather than, quote, oh, it's easy. We just have to raise the, the return in financial sense. You do have an alternative of creating a social reward, honor, dignity, uh, pride. There are other ways to motivate people, and I don't – I think economists do tend to ignore that. So I'm with you on that. Yeah, and I, I will say neither uh, Bowles nor um, uh, Sandel lean exclusively on that one example. They they pick out other ones. Um, but and I think all you need to to see to see their point is there's certain goods which clearly would be mutated if if you think about them in monetary terms. I mean, there's there's a reason why we think um, prostitution is different from marriage, right? Yep. Um, so. And, and But then the trick would be to to go into each particular case and ask, how does this balance out? And sometimes you're absolutely right. The incentives are going to be the easiest, most obvious, intuitive way to handle it. Um, the warning is just not to think exclusively in terms of incentives. No, so. I think the incentives are crucial. I just think that monetary incentives are not much different than non-monetary incentives. If you have a norm that says the right thing to do is to give up your kidney uh, for a friend – of course, I, I I salute Virginia Postrel who donated a kidney to Sally Satel, uh, and you know we've had conversations with both of them, and and on as well as conversations about a market for kidneys, and uh, so we'll put up links to all those. Um, but I think you know norms and and inc- norms are just well, norms are sort of a kind of incentive. I think the 
it may be important to make a distinction between uh, a monetary incentive that makes you better off versus doing the right thing that makes you better off. What what Smith Adam Smith called propriety uh, and a certain expectation that there's civilized ways of behaving in interacting with others. So maybe, maybe there is an important distinction there that I shouldn't um, conflate. Yeah, and I, I would really like to see social science move more in the direction of thinking through um, how to balance out these things or or what's involved in these norms. Um, so, because I do think there's something, like we all want to be able to look ourselves in the mirror. At the end of the day, those kinds of, if there's a social calling for me to be a certain way, it's going to be easy for me to step in to do that. And um, and there isn't a sense of higher calling to make, you know, to getting more. And that's, and that's what worries me about the heavy weight on incentives that's currently uh, characterizes our, our culture. Yeah, I was just thinking about tipping. Um, tipping, I think people tip in restaurants because it's the right thing to do. Uh, it's a norm that has evolved. Some people don't like that norm recently. They've criticized it. But I do think it's different than the economist's way of looking at tipping in the standard model, which is, well, there's a chance you might be back there again with that same waiter. That's clearly technically true, but it's not why people tip. Right. Right. So, no, it's a way of saying thank you. And thank you is not just to try to get you to be nice to me later on. It's like to yeah. express actual gratitude. So. Although it begs the question why that service seems to call forth a desire to express gratitude. And there's interesting reflections on why. But um, yeah. but it is a norm. And so I feel like I have to say thank you that way. And I usually mean it. I mean, I usually genuinely yep. feel gratitude. So, No, I agree. And I've told the story in here before about leaving a large tip at a, at a lodge in a national park. And my uh, housekeeper returning my wife's diamond earring. Uh, it wasn't my plan. <laughs> it wasn't an insurance <laughs> policy. I just got, it was a lanyap. It was a bonus. It was gravy. Mm-hmm. But I was, uh, I, I like tipping. I get, as you say, I get pleasure from the expression of gratitude. But uh, it, it is, it is a little bit complicated. I do think it's an interesting question whether norms and propriety have become less important in American society. I mean, that is the concern Sandal expresses that I, I clearly share. Um, whenever you substitute money, you're saying that the norms aren't what matters. Because nobody, yeah, you know, like I've already said, nobody thinks you rise in, 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 in character, improving character by doing whatever it takes to get more money. So, um, so I, I do think there's a systematic substitution. And, uh, but... And I would hope that people would start thinking about that more thoroughly because, you know, Sandel shoots from the hip. And, and it, it seemed to me to be more a gateway to a question that should be explored more deeply. At the same time, though, I think other institutions, as you can see, it's not just economics and economists. Other institutions that used to teach what I would call virtue, such as our public schools, definitely do not do that anymore. They teach a different kind of virtue. What they, you know, I think they teach tolerance and self-esteem, which are the wrong um, – I think those are not necessarily the right. There's, they're both po- have positive aspects to them, but honesty, courage, duty, honor, etc., are in, have fallen into disfavor. I think in American society to some extent. Yeah. No. Absolutely. A uh, little self-discipline would go a long way. Um, so, and that's what bothers me about the whole self-esteem 
push. Um, it's again, it's good to feel good about yourself. And as you already said, that's we're, we're built to want to feel good about ourselves. Um, but if it's without content, uh, you end up not feeling good about yourself at all. That's, I think that's one way to identify when you've taken a lesser good and put it up too high is that when you pursue it as an ultimate good, you actually lose all the good or all the value that was there in the first place. Uh, it corrupts it. And self-esteem is a perfect example of that. I think it's a disaster that we've pushed that so hard in the schools. Let's talk about economic growth. Uh, you mentioned Tyler Cowen. Tyler was on here uh, in the past talking about economic growth as a virtue. Do you see it as a virtue, as, a, as something public policy should aim for? Definitely not something public policy should aim for. Uh, caveat, when we're talking about already developed Western developed economies. Um, so economic growth is clearly very good for, for impoverished countries coming out of poverty. Um, the question is whether we should pursue further economic growth in the United States and Europe and Japan and places that have already in some sense arrived. Um, and I do not, because uh, I think that just feeds into this illusion that more is better and it keeps people scrambling off after this elusive whatever is the next thing and not failing to see the goods that are around them and failing to cultivate these higher goods. So I worry about that a lot. That said, the ideal economy in in my picture, so if, you, if I got to my utopian vision of what the economy should be, be like where we're pursuing our economic lives in service of these higher goods, um, I think it would create a healthy, flourishing society and healthy flourishing organisms tend to grow. So I would expect growth as a byproduct of pursuing these goods. Um, and, and I would welcome that kind of growth. Uh, but when I think when you pursue it as an end in itself, you end up uh, devaluing, um, not valuing enough these higher goods and you end up with a lot more stuff and a lot less genuine human flourishing, genuine human meaning, genuine human purpose. And So let me ask you a tougher question. Uh, some people believe that economic growth has not been shared widely over the last 40 years. I disagree. As longtime listeners know, uh, I think a lot of people have gotten more materially uh, improved than, than the data suggests for a variety of reasons. Um, however... There is a reasonable amount, excuse me, there is a substantial amount of inequality at any point in time, which you could debate whether that's good or bad. But do you think we should devote our policy space to bringing up people at the bottom rather than improving the economy as a whole? Uh, neither. <laughs> I want to go off the menu on that one. Fair enough. Um, so – if you just look at material goods, then the point that you make that a, you know a growing economy has clearly raised the material standard of living for the poor, and people worried about income inequality are missing that fact, and you're exactly right about that. Um, but what I think you might be missing is um, that the real problem with income inequality is is the social meaning it has, and and that's a different question, although. Once we start worrying about these inequalities that I think are rising in our culture, uh, when we start thinking about them in economic terms, it invites the response that you want to give, which is if you care about the material well, you know, if you care about how much money people have, then you need to take into account the fact that the people at the bottom tend to have a little bit more than they did 50 or 100 years ago. 
it seems to me that what both people on both sides of the debate are missing is that what matters is the social meaning of the inequality. And I do think that's been shifting in character over time. So you can imagine a world where, say, you're at a university and you have professors and you have secretaries and you have gardeners. Um, and, and, and it would be natural for a lot of reasons for the professors to be higher paid because they spent more time doing educa- um, educating themselves uh, and because maybe the community wants to celebrate the, the good of the university, which is represented by what professors do. So there's lots of good reasons to pay a professor more than a gardener at a university. That said, you can imagine one good kind of university where the professors go to work and they admire the gardening that's been done. They're friendly with them. They, they have full respect for and value the contributions of everybody, even though they're being paid differently. Uh, and so there's a sense of community, right? Um, so that would be one vision. And then another vision is, well, my economic well-being is a marker of my status. If I make more than you, I'm better than you. Um, and I use it for these invidious distinctions. And I, I think there's a real argument to be made that we're increasingly using our economic wealth to make these invidious distinctions. Um, indeed, I at least entertain the hypothesis or possibility that part of the reason why we're so frantically searching after more wealth is because these invidious distinctions have gotten more and more pronounced over the decades. Um, so anyway, I, I just I, I think economic inequality is is a topic that really could benefit from rethinking in a way that that thought through thought it through in terms not just of the economic characteristics but of what the whole human picture of economic inequality means. Um, so that's lovely, and I'm sympathetic to it. Um, but how would that change the actual wages? Would you would you suggest that? Well, you you conceded that that professors should earn more than gardeners. They shouldn't probably earn as much more as they actually do now, right? In terms of the that status and change in comparative respect. So, but if you shrink that gap, you're either going to have an excess supply of gardeners and or a shortage of professors, right? The market forces are going to punish you. How would you? Or do you want to change that? No, not really. Um, the market forces are going to set things the way they do. Um, certainly not at the level of professors and gardeners. Um, I'm not. I'm not such a libertarian that I'm unilaterally opposed to, you know, taxing the rich more or whatever. That just might be a social signal that, you know, while we think distinctions are relevant and, and matter, that there just should be a cap to them. Um, but I am, I'm far more interested in this book and in my whole project is, is to let other people sort out how much, how much should we have the state do to correct these things. So I really want to shape the culture such that the people at the top end who are, you know, pursuing their wealth, they're not going to be trying to maximize it, right? Um, so they will, ideally, they would voluntarily identify a standard of living that marks out whatever they've accomplished. And then the rest would be available, either through higher taxes or through charitable donations or whatever, uh, to meet community needs, to meet the needs of people who who have fallen behind. Um, and, and we have examples of this. Um, so... Warren Buffett, for example, still lives 
in Omaha, Nebraska, yep. in his old neighborhood. It's a nice house. I, I'm sure his life marks out that he has, you know, been successful. But he doesn't need a 65,000 square foot mansion, right, with 20 acres and and, and fencing. In Seattle, um, say, hypothetically. Hypothetically, yeah. And, and so... So, yes, so to me, there's healthy economic inequality and then there's unhealthy un- economic inequality. But the primary thing driving it to me is not, well, the market's there doing it, but it's, it's the social, the way we socially navigate that. And, um, and that does strike me that something has changed. So I'm 58. I guess I'm a few years younger than you. But it does seem to me in the 60s and 70s, it wasn't quite as pronounced as it is now. This idea that successful people really should have these, you know, splendiferous mansions and leave everybody else behind. Um, it seemed, I mean, there are always people like that, don't get me wrong. But it also seemed there was a lot more people who had Warren Buffett sensibilities of, sure, I'm a successful physician and I'm going to live in a nice house, but I'm still neighbors with these other guys and I'm still part of the community and I'm not going to make myself so different from them that there's a break in the community. Um, yeah, I think that's, I don't know if that's true or not. I, you know, people say that I, and it's, I, I think it's partly just that we got a lot wealthier um, in the eighties and nineties and onward. But uh, I have to tell a story. I, I don't think it's, tr- I'm a skeptic about the story, but it's a, it's an interesting example of what we're talking about. Supposedly I, Love to know if it's really true. Uh, uh, I think it was a business class, uh, some MBA class, where this student was going into the final exam with an A, easy A. Uh, it's a student with a, a 4.0, maybe at an undergrad even. And they get to the final exam, and the final exam is a blank piece of paper. And the, oh, there's only one question. The teacher says, uh, you have a paper piece of paper in front of you. Uh, Enter uh, onto the piece of paper the name of the cleaning lady for this building. And the student telling the story years later said, I didn't know the name of that cleaning lady. I had to leave it blank or I made up something and I got a B for the class. Now, I'm a little bit skeptical this actually happened, but <laughs> it's a nice story even if it didn't happen. Uh, I think it's a, it's a good lesson about the kind of minimal human interaction you're talking about in a place where there's disparity between people's prospects and, and material well-being. But, but I also want to push back in a different way because it seems to me that by focusing on the material inequality, we've become obsessed with ways to change that with money. And I think, although there are many people who garden who think it's a glorious thing, and I salute them, there are probably some people who garden who garden because they don't have other skills that they didn't get because their school wasn't so good. And I'd, I'd rather see us improve our schools in in drastic ways rather than change the tax system? Um, I'm all for improving uh, education so everybody has access to realizing their talents. But I'm also very worried about the people whose vocation really is to be a gardener. And, and those people are going to exist anyway. And by the way, we're, we're always going to need the gardening to be done. And so I would... I would really like us to start moving back towards a world where we recognize the value of an honest day's work and, and gave people, you know, social uh, admiration for doing that, even if they're not always materially compensated, you know, as, as much as other people are. Um, How would so you do that, Mary? I mean, I, I agree with you, right? Mm-hmm. What's, what's the practical implication of that? 
Well, this is the whole thing about trying to work through culture, because unlike state and unlike the individual, there's no button I can push to just change things. Uh, but I, but cultures do change, and they change through conversations like this one. And so I just keep having these conversations. It's kind of me tossing my little coin into the pot. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and, you know, things can change. And, uh, you know, we've, again, we've seen this happen in our lifetimes. Uh, when we were growing up, everybody smoked. It was super common. And sure, we had a few laws. We threw on some taxes. But we also just had people talking and talking. And now it's a disreputable practice and far fewer people smoke. So cultures really can change. Um, and so I'm just doing my little bit trying to change it in this other direction. Um, and, and, and also, I think it helps to start trying to put into practice so I can have the conversation, but I can also make sure that I do know the name of, you know, the person who cleans my office, which, by the way, is also Mary. So um, Easy one. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, 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 just, and just get back in the habit of seeing. I think Adam Smith is really onto something. The pain of poverty is that people socially do not see you. And and one thing that you can start to do is just learn to see the people that you normally don't see. Um, and it's actually – so I, I try to practice this. And and anyway. Yeah, and I, I'm, I, I'm a big fan of that kind of, quote, policy, uh, that it's not some edict out of Washington, but individuals – choosing to be more respectful and giving honor to people in their lives who don't maybe make as much money as they do, but provide extraordinarily wonderful services and to raise the non-monetary rewards. You know, the smoking example is really interesting. I never thought about it before, but you left out something in your summary, which was that it came to be believed that it killed you earlier than you otherwise would die. And, and it, but you write the right point, which is that that incentive, which is an incentive, was also went along with a cultural view of smoking that it simply wasn't cool and not because it killed you. I, I, you know, there's something more than that. It wasn't just, oh, it's really cool, but be careful, it kills you. It was, it's, it's an ugly habit. And um, I think they both happened together, which is, which is interesting. Well, I, I can actually speak to this. This is personal. I was a smoker, and I certainly knew all of the terrible things it was going to do to my health. Uh, but I liked smoking, and that was by itself never, ever going to change my behavior. What changed my behavior was the social stigma become became unbearable. Yeah, it's fascinating. So yeah. interesting. Um, now, you, you have an, a remarkably unusual um, academic career. In the middle of your uh, career as an economist, you decided to get a Ph.D. in theology at, at Notre Dame, having a Ph.D. from Harvard in economics under your belt already – um, and in the course of that, you studied some Aquinas uh, quite a bit, evidently. Uh, has it changed your behavior as a consumer? Do you, do you notice it? I'm not, I'm not suggesting that if you don't notice it, it obviously it, that it didn't make a difference. It could make a difference without you noticing it. But I'm curious if you notice it. Um, I love that you asked that question. Yes, it made a difference. Um, it, it took – because I've been working on this way of seeing the world for 15 years now. Um, and it took a while, so it, it really is a conversion. Um, but no, I, I no longer need a raise. Like, I really am happy with what I have, and it changes how I, you know, I walk into my house, and I just, I'm much more able to look at it and go, this is nice. Like, you know, yay. Um, so, 
the kinds of decisions I make have certainly changed. My orientation, what's important in life has, has really changed. Um, and I mean, part of the reason why I have a certain passion about it is, is cause it really has made me a happier, more flourishing person. Um, but you have to walk it. You, you, you can read about it and you can say, oh, that sounds really nice. Um, you have to start putting it into practice for it to become real. And so it's been an amazing journey. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. I think about the amount of time I've spent leafing through catalogs, uh, typically of gadgets, but not always, uh, and thinking, wow, if I could just get that one. And now I make enough money that I can almost I – get, I get most of them if I want – um, like I have a fairly expensive camera and I upgrade my camera f- every few years, which is probably stupid, uh, probably a mistake, probably be better off keeping my current camera and, uh, just getting better at taking pictures with it. As I like to say, it's the wizard, not the wand. But when people compliment me on my photographs, but sometimes I, I get obsessed with the wand. I can't help it, but I do think it's an interesting question of how one should socialize oneself, how one should be self-aware about one's own consumerism and and need or passion or uh, addiction to the material world. Um, One of the things I like about the rise of of ride-sharing and um, the potential for for autonomous vehicles is that – I'm not obsessed with cars, but I, I would I would prefer not to have one at all. I don't have a fancy car. I have a Honda Accord. It's a nice car, uh, but I don't have a fancy car. Um, so it's an interesting question of how to think about how to wean oneself from these um, this material addiction if you think it is an unhealthy thing in the long run. Yeah, and it's also a matter of discerning because for some people, having a nice car might actually make sense. It might fit certain you know, certain of the goods they're trying to instantiate in their lives and and more power to them. But your camera example is a good one because I I was in the same boat. I would always look at all these gadgets. I would, you know, what if I won the lottery? I think of all these things that I would buy. But then part of the trick is to look around at the litter in your house, especially in the basement. And those used to all represent those same kinds of desires. And at least for me, 90% of them were a complete waste. Um, So it's just learning that, that there's an illusion about what this next thing might do for you versus just pausing to say, no, really, really, what would it do for me? And if the answer is it really would do something, then sure. Um, but I think a lot of times you'll find out that, no, I want the better camera to substitute for the fact that I'm not taking the time to figure out how to, you know, become a better photographer. Um, at least for my life, that actually turned out to be true a lot. So now I kind of come back and say, okay, why don't you just think about becoming a better cook rather than getting better pots and pans, you know? <laughs> oh, but that new coating is so fantastic. I know, and it will just, it will change everything. Everything, everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, now, you mentioned status before, and I do think uh, economists, unlike, say, sociologists, underrate the importance of status, and they tend to think that people pursue uh, material well-being for its direct impact rather than its, its status effect. You do, we do have to accept the fact, though, or maybe you don't, but I, I am very aware of the fact that people are going to compete on status in, in certain ways, even if you take away some of the ways they currently compete. Do you worry about that? Um, yes and no. Uh, 
I think it is built in. I mean, it, this goes back to the Smith point, right? So we all want to have social approbation. We want to be approved of and we want to be loved. And, and that's never going to go away. Um, so then the real question is what are good ways to get that social approval versus what are not such good ways? And um, so we're always going to have status. I, You know, we should... I, we should always esteem the person who is wise and prudent um, and, you know, over the person who's foolish and intemperate and all the rest. Um, so that's a status thing, but it's a status based on real accomplishments rather than these external markers. And also it's, an, it's a status that doesn't – there's a status where I want to lord it over the other people versus a status where I'm happy that I inhabit the goods that I inhabit, but it's – still oriented back to the community so it's not at your expense it's more like i'm contributing to the community and i'm glad you appreciate the contributions but i in turn am going to appreciate what you contribute so there's more of a back and forth a give and take that leads to a healthier version of status pursuit um so this this goes to a theological point i mean there there from a catholic point of view there is a hierarchy in human nature i mean that we can't help it there's going to be a certain hierarchy Everything turns on what that hierarchy means, right? So, um, you know, Jesus' command to the disciples is that, yes, you know, that the, the people who would lead should think of themselves as servants, right? So they're going to have the status of leader, but they're still oriented towards serving the community. That's a healthy form of hierarchy. Uh, whereas we just kind of want to go out on our individual own and climb as high as we can and get to the top and go, hurrah, yay me, and... And that's more unfortunate and also much more common. So, Yeah, it would be interesting if politicians were more interested. Uh, we call them public servants. I, I hate that phrase. Um, maybe once upon a time it was true. Yeah, it could have been true. Uh, that may be true of some people at some time. Uh, and I, I, the implication then is that Jeff Bezos is not a public servant because he's working for money and not for serving. And yeah, eh. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Say something about Aquinas's uh, view of human decision making relative to an animal, because I think our the seductive nature of material goods. Uh, when I buy that extra gadget and then it's left abandoned six months later uh, in the basement, uh, I think Aquinas has something to say about that, comparing us say to animals uh, that act on instinct, and we do have the potential for something more than that. So, what does Aquinas say? Um. So there's one way I just want to repeat what I said in the book, and then I kind of want to go past it because it occurs to me that I left out an important point. But the point in the book is um, if we think about ourselves in, solely in terms of acting in terms of incentives, if you pay me more, I'll do this. If you tax me more, I'll do less of that, which is all clearly true. Aquinas actually identifies that kind of rationality as being the sort of rationality that we share with animals because it's one that mostly goes off of our pleasures and our pains and makes these calculations along that. And then if that's what it is, the only thing that distinguishes a human from an animal is that we're a little bit cleverer about how to do these calculations. Um, so that goes back to Hobbes who wanted to say that's the only real difference between an animal and a human. Um, but but for Aquinas or Aristotle or really any of the ancients, there's a higher human rationality or intelligence that allows us to step back from our momentary impulses or desires or fears or whatever and ask what is good and what is true and what is beautiful and to think through the meaning of things and to 
um, choose out which of the finite goods are worthy of pursuit in our lives and to order our lives coherently around them. Uh, it's, it's the exercise of human rationality that allows us to be creative. It's the exercise of rationality that lets us be distinct, individually distinct. Um, so, you know, a dolphin might be really, really smart, but my guess is most dolphins act more or less the same way in the same set of circumstances, whereas we humans have a wide variety of things that we can do. And that comes out of this ability to contemplate what is good for us to want rather than just wanting what we want. Um, so the, the thing that I would add is um, when we pursue those gadgets, that's still not even, animals don't really do that, right? I mean, they don't pile up, the squirrel doesn't pile up well, maybe they do, but well, they try. <laughs> they might try, but I don't think they have the problem of having all that junk of failed things that they wanted. Like they mostly <laughs> go out. <laughs> so I, I think there's a further distortion that happens when you introduce money and this maximizing idea that's kind of a human, it's a distortion of human rationality that plays off or with our instincts in a way that makes us maybe even worse than animals, which by the way is another common ancient theme that, you know, a good human is wonderful, but a bad human is worse than a beast because we, we somehow max, yeah. So I don't know if I made that clear or not, but. Um, well, did you want to say more about, uh, repeat what you said about the extension of of the idea in the book, because you said what you said about the book very well, uh, but then you said you wanted to add something, and did you finish that thought? Well, I, I kind of waved at it. So the, <laughs> the, thought, the book basically wants to identify our maximizing behavior with the animals, and, and the addendum is actually we're probably worse. Okay. When, we're, when we're in the mode of maximizing, we're probably worse, because what happens is once we get this idea that we can pursue our infinite desires through more, we humans actually have deep ideas about the infinite for, for a believer of the infinite good of God, but even if you're not a believer, the, the deeper or richer goods of human relationship and all the other things that we've been talking about. If I misdirect that desire for the infinite onto stuff, right, I'm going to be really hungry for it and I'm going to want a whole lot more of it. And I don't think animals quite have that frenzied desire for more that we have. Um, I think it's a human distortion that comes through of our reason being um, fallen or disordered. Well, David Foster Wallace says in his uh, his commencement address, everyone worships, and he suggests you worship something that's stood the test of time and that involves the transcendent rather than, say, beauty, your own beauty or money. And he claims, and I, this is a religious – He's not. I don't think he's a religious person particularly, but um, – it's a religious claim that the pursuit of stuff or your own physical appearance or fame, and certainly Smith agrees with this, is uh, a fool's game. You're not going to be satisfied. You're never going to have enough. There will always be people who are, have more than you do. And then you'll lose your beauty as you age. Uh, you'll desperately try to stave it off with plastic surgery and other – and exercise maybe and other things, but ultimately – You'll uh, you'll fade, your beauty will fade, and uh, therefore it's not going to ultimately be a satisfying thing to cherish and to to um, to salute and put at the top of a pedestal. So th these are these views have become. I mean, they're almost they're not almost they're cliches. They're they're part of what you could call the wisdom literature that nobody on their deathbed wishes they had more toys. Um, uh, nobody on their deathbed wishes they'd spent more time at the office. Um, 
And yet I think, you know, for young people listening, uh, when they hear these kind of comments between oldsters like you and me, Mary, they, they go, oh, that's just, you know, that's just religion stuff masquerading as, as advice that, you know, we don't need that. We, we go out and have fun. We do what we want and stay out of my life. Well, they may say that. Um, and unfortunately, then they will inherit the older version of themselves that they're going to be creating. <laughs> and, and I had to struggle with the weaknesses that I accumulated by behaving exactly that way when I was younger. But I want to finish the David Waster, uh, Foster Wallace quote. He says it will eat you alive. Yes, he right? does. It's, it's not just <laughs> – and, and maybe they can't hear our wisdom, but they're going to find out. I mean, if I decide that what really matters is becoming the most famous economist in the world, the problem is there's always somebody more famous. And so and, – and, and then the tragedy of it is my achievements just – fade away, right? Like I can't even enjoy what I've achieved if I'm always looking to that next rung. And I figured that out around the age of 30, that this is just, you know, it's, it's, it's completely counterproductive. I'm, I'm, I'm positioning myself in an attitude towards the world that's going to make me perpetually miserable. And uh, it's been a long walk back from it. Um, but all we can do is talk about it, and then when they hit the place where they realize the last promotion is still leaving them really upset because there's another promotion they need, uh, maybe they'll remember what we said, and they'll go, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> there was something to that. Uh, well, it's interesting. So- you're, you're a Catholic. I'm a Jew, but it's kind of a Buddhist um, set of wisdom, part of wisdom here, which is if you don't – if you're always grasping, if you're always trying to get more, if you're always dissatisfied with what you have, that will be your life. Um, yeah, you know, my way of thinking about this is free beer tomorrow. It's like, um, the sign in the bar, free beer tomorrow. Oh yeah. Yeah. Tomorrow will be great. Cause that's the free beer and you get in the bar and it's the sign says free beer tomorrow. Oh, tomorrow. that's okay. I'll come back tomorrow. Uh, and it just, you never get there. So, uh, I don't want to be, um, I don't want to be a curmudgeon. Uh, and I don't want to suggest I have, uh, insights that younger people don't have, but it's worth considering. And certainly the libertarian in me, and I'm uh, probably more of a libertarian than you, although less than I was when I was 25, um, says to people, choose a way. It's up to you. That's what freedom's all about. No, and I, I absolutely do not want to have paternalistic legislation to keep them from choosing what they're going to be choosing. I strongly resist any moves in that direction. But I I'm going to feel free to tell them that I think it's a bad idea and have conversations with them about it. And uh, as, as you pointed out, this is ancient wisdom. It's across all sorts of cultures and all sorts of religious traditions. Uh, the Greek pagans had this idea, you know, Aristotle, Plato, everybody knows this. Um, what's missing in our culture, I think, is this, we've forgotten that 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 was good wisdom and and that this other behavior, while it comes up and certainly young people are going to be particularly open to the idea that just one more thing will be better, um, we, we have forgotten to call that advice. We have forgotten to call that out as a lesser, you know, a, an ultimately unsatisfactory path. And um, well, Other than so, smoking – sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Other than smoking and intolerance, there are no vices in American society, so – Vice has gone out of fashion, or we've changed what the fashions are, for sure. Yeah, although I think what we're going to find is uh, people do like to call out vices, and so they're going to be very judgmental about the ones that they keep Correct. on their list. Yeah. So, uh, and again, speaking as an ex-smoker, I can testify. <laughs> well, Scott Alexander has um, a beautiful essay on that. I want to, I'll put up uh, 
from his uh, website, Slate Star Codex. Um, I don't want to stop before we talk about sunk costs. This is a bit of minutia to some extent, but it's such a perennial issue in economics classes and uh, and in economists uh, haranguing of people. I, I don't want to miss it. Uh, you make the point, I think it's in your book, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you make the point that it's a little bit weird that economists are proud of taking people as they are, and yet most people struggle with the idea that sunk costs are sunk. They take sunk costs into account, and economists say, oh, no, 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 that's not rational. But evidently, most people then are not rational because most people are very uncomfortable with it. So you made that point, but you have a deeper point about why I think we should take account of sunk costs. So share that, please. Okay. Um, but first, I, I, I just I love the observation that in chapter one of an economics textbook, they'll say, we're just describing people as they are. People are rational, and this is how it goes. And then in chapter two, they'll say, and most people fail to <laughs> you know, respect their sunk costs. It, and, and they never even notice that there's a small tension there. Um, but anyway, uh, now there's some places where you actually do want to ignore your sunk costs. If I'm playing you at poker and I've spent a lot of money bidding up the pot, and then on the last card, it turns out that I really am not going to win, I should not follow up my losses with more betting, unless I think I can con you out of it. But there, there's a good, you know, there's plenty of places where you really should ignore your sunk costs. Um, but if you think about it as a practice in general, um, if I'm always saying to myself, oh, well, whatever it was that happened yesterday is a sunk cost, I have to decide today, that means I'm always going to be emphasizing what are my feelings in the moment. They're just going to have an elevated sense of importance in my decision making. Um, and the problem is my feelings in the moment might often be impulsive or not wise. And part of self-discipline, part of growing in, in self-discipline and virtue is learning that well, sure, I might want the donut today, um, but in the long run, I would like to cultivate the habit of not wanting donuts because it would be better for my health. And so, so there, I mean, there's classic places where this happens. Um, if I want to start exercising more, I might go down to the gym and pay for a membership fee. And then if I have the idea that I should honor my sunk costs, I'm more likely to act on that higher impulse and get to the gym. But if I do what the economist says on the day when I'm thinking I don't want to go to the gym because I'm tired, and then my little quote-unquote irrational voice says, but you paid that money for the membership, you should go. Well, the economist would say, no, ignore that voice. That's a sunk cost. If you don't feel like going, don't go. And then I never get this chance to discipline myself. Now, economists certainly have models that allow you to try to do this self-committing kind of behavior. They, ha they have complicated models to try to handle these kinds of situations. Uh, I just think it's a lot more common than they think. And, and, and I think the main reason I think that is actually personal. I really was formed as an economist. You know, I started grad school at the age of 20, 21, whatever I was. I was young. Um, and I always found myself thinking on the margin, ignoring my sunk costs, and not developing anything remotely like self-discipline. So I'm really, and I'm still struggling with this. The legacy of this is still in my being. Um, I think it's. I think that's a remarkably yeah. deep insight. I've never heard it before. And I, you know, that example would be. I think you used in the book actually of you buy tickets for, and we've talked about ticket scalping and mm -hmm. the alleged. Um, 
all the challenges to rationality that come up when you lose a ticket uh, for an event. Should you rebuy it at a scalp price? And uh, you know, but or when you overpay, let's say or you pay a lot for a ticket, uh, sunk costs are sunk. That that money is irrelevant. And yet, so an example would be, um, I think it's the one you use in the book. Although I love the exercise one too, but uh, you know, you buy a ticket for an event. And now it's the day of the event. And obviously, when you bought the ticket, you thought the value was of the event was greater than the value of the ticket. But now, oh, you're so tired or you've got this other stuff to do. And, and you should ignore the fact that you own the ticket, uh, that you, whatever you paid for, because that money is gone no matter what. And you should just make the decision right now. And I think the idea that you bind yourself to the mast, uh, the, the Ulysses illusion, that you bind yourself to the mast and say, I'm going to honor sunk costs because – I'm going to go to more concerts that way, or I'm going to exercise more, or I'm going to socialize with friends more, uh, and I'm going to use that as a way to, as as you say, to remind myself of what I ultimately care about. I think that's a that's really very cool. Oh, well, thank you. Um, I, again, it comes right out of personal experience. I I didn't go to the opera that day. <laughs> you know, I stayed home and I've regretted it ever since. I. Um, because again, and it becomes habit forming. Uh, it becomes habit forming to say, "Oh, you know, I just don't feel like going today, so I won't." And then you miss out on all these higher goods. I mean, a lot of the things worth having in life require some effort, and uh, that means sacrificing your present concerns for these higher goods that are going to come to fruition later on. And well, let's close with the humane economy, mm-hmm. uh, which is in your title, toward a humane economy. Uh, would you? Would you be in favor of tariffs to protect jobs for workers who are going to lose their livelihood in the face of foreign competition? Is that a more humane economy than one that allows free trade? I do not have an answer to that question because um, it's hard and there's trade-offs. Um, and also, because I'm a good daughter of the church, I have to deal with the fact the church is in favor of open borders. Um, so, but I want us to be very, I, I don't want to accept a logic that says if we open up the borders, we will get more stuff. And that's the reason why we should open up the borders. I, I just always want us to come back in our thinking to what serves human flourishing. And an important component of human flourishing is human community and all the rest. So if opening up the borders or opening up free trade um, ends up, causing jobs to be shipped out so certain communities hemorrhage jobs and then break down. Um, that just has to be in our calculus. Now, is that a trump card also? I don't think so. I mean, there's there's obviously good from trade. We sure as heck want to have it. Uh, I'm not for a local-only market or anything like that. Um, but, but I guess, yeah, the only thing I would add, and, and plenty of people want to put it in there, is let's not just do this in terms of economic costs and benefits because there's a lot more involved and start to think it through. Um, theologically speaking, I don't think the church has yet really grown. I don't know of a good way of balancing the goods of building up local communities that have their own integrity with the goods of being openness to the stranger, right? And there, and there are two kinds of goods, and they both matter, um, and they can come into conflict. Um, so, so I don't have a, a one-size-fits-all answer to that question. Um, but I'm not unsympathetic to the people that are worried about what's happening to local communities as a result of free trade and uh, open immigration. 
It's, it seems to me that that your concerns, even as you say, as you're groping toward a, a way of, say, balancing those issues, that the voices of economists of your flavor should be in the conversation. It, it seems to me that economists have spent way too much time arguing for trade for what I think are the wrong reasons, which are that, oh, it's efficient. You get more right. stuff. The pie's bigger. But to me, it should be about dynamism and the opportunity for each generation to mold their dreams and desires to the market's uh, creativity. And and so people who are aware of these trade-offs, but who also understand markets, I'd like to see your voice <laughs> get a little more oomph. So that's good. Yeah. Now, and I think it's why, I mean, it's, you just want to have it to be part of the give and take. It's, it's not meant to displace. It's just to... I would really like to see economics move to a place where they retain their insights about how markets work, about how incentives work, but start integrating it with these other perspectives about what human flourishing really consists in. And I just think there would be a lot of really interesting empirical work along these boundaries. Um, So it would be great if that started to happen. My guest today has been Mary Hirschfeld. Her book is Aquinas and the Market. Mary, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.